1979, the first issue of Fangoria was released into the world. It's been over 40 years, and they are better than ever, with each issue bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horror's past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical, collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page. Head to Fangoria.com right now to learn more and to, you know, subscribe. And while you're there, make sure to use the promo code KINGCAST to save 25% off your annual subscription. Now on with the show. My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Red rum! Red rum! Sir! I'm gonna go see a dead body. Well, sometimes, that is better. Hello, and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name is Eric Vespi. And I'm Scott Wampler. And we are your hosts. Today's guest is the head writer of Marvel's Moon Knight, who also spearheaded the frankly way better than it should have been Exorcist series that ran on Fox for two seasons, uh, and is one of the folks responsible for bringing the Umbrella Academy to life at Netflix. On top of that, he's the screenwriter of The Lazarus Effect, Pet, and the upcoming Mortal Kombat sequel. What I'm saying is he's he's a busy guy, and yet he has still carved out some time to join us today to talk about Stephen King's desperation. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Jeremy Slater to the KingCast stage. What's up, guys? Hey, How how's going? it going, Slater? <clears throat> I'm uh, I'm okay. Uh, the the I'm fiercely hungover uh, because it's Wednesday, <laughs> and because uh, yes, last <laughs> night was the Moon Knight premiere. So I may be um, chugging water throughout this interview, but I'm really excited to be here. Uh, I love the podcast. I'm obviously play. Overwatch with Vespi every single night of my life. Um, <laughs> Just about. Oh, I didn't know that. That's oh, yes. Yeah, yeah uh, I was going to actually ask. I'm I'm very slowly collecting the entire Overwatch team uh, and bringing them onto the KingCast. At some point, we had uh, <laughs> David Yaravesky on. Yeah. Uh, he, he's part of our, our group. Um, and I wanted to ask you, Slater, before we like start any of the other discussions, who do you think is the better Lucio, me or Yarvo? um you know what i don't think yarvo's gonna actually listen to this so he's a terrible lucio let's just say let's let's address the elephant in the room let's say what we're all thinking america knows that i'm number one you're clearly number two and Mm -hmm. he's he's bringing Mm -hmm. up the third i'm not familiar with this character but that was my understanding of the situation (laughs) everyone knows yeah i mean i i think it's very clear that you're the better diva that that's for sure, and that's D V D period V A for you, Scott. That's not like awkward diva or something. Awkward diva. Opera. Opera. <laughs> oh, diva. I thought you said awkward diva. <laughs> the the eight people who listen to the show that also play Overwatch are like super enjoying themselves right now. Everybody else is going, "What the fuck?" They're are these enthralled, guys and about? everyone else is like, "Let's see who the next guest is." <laughs> Speaking of being entirely unfamiliar with a, a, a character, though, like, I've never read any of the Moon Knight comics, but everyone I've ever talked to about Moon Knight comics, they only tell me things that sound like shit I would enjoy. I'm not sure why I haven't bothered seeking it out yet because it sounds pretty wild. There's some really cool stuff out there. One of the things about Moon Knight is that basically anytime a new creator comes on the book, like there was never 
he was never an A-list character. So, so it was always one of those things where if someone wanted to come in and totally reinvent him and throw out his origin and throw out his powers and, 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 and take the series in a weird new direction, Marvel comics was always like, yeah, sure. Go for it. Um, so, so there's versions where he has disassociative identity disorder and there's versions where he's just a dude in white pajamas, just like beating up werewolves. And there's versions where he's crazy and there's versions where he's hunting down serial killers and there's versions where he's a, a sort of secret agent working with the Avengers. But if, if you're looking for a cool place to to start, the two that I always recommend, um, Jeff Lemire had a run, um, a, a, I think an eight-issue run called Welcome to New Egypt that we took a lot of inspiration from. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's a very cool, twisty sort of mindfuck read. Um, and then Warren Ellis had a six-issue run I forget what it's called, but uh, but every issue is kind of just like a self-contained badass little vignette action story, um, and both of those are are definitely worth checking out. Right on, right on. I will certainly look into that. There's a pretty famous panel from Moon Knight where he's descending a staircase and yelling at Dracula. Fucking Dracula! <laughs> is that that's real? Right? That's not Photoshop. No, it's we. Tr- there's there's a ton of memes. Uh, there's also one where he's like throwing his, like batarangs and and screaming like useless shit go and other things like that. There's <laughs> one where he's he's um, kind of making fun of Punisher's dead wife. A lot of them are, are <laughs> but but they've sort of taken on this life of their own. And we tried so hard to you know because we can't say fuck on Disney Plus, um, right? And we also don't have Draculas in the show. Um, but we tried so hard to, to think of some way to reference those memes and we just couldn't do it. I couldn't get it in there. Mm. So hopefully no, the swearing is going to get in your way every time. Yeah. You know, like, there's always season two. Someday. Hey, they're, they're bringing in the Netflix shows now, right? Into, into Disney plus and saying, all right, we can, we can do that. So yeah, I don't know. Maybe it definitely came after my scripts were already written. <laughs> uh, <laughs> now it's okay. Disney says, um, <laughs> Uh, well, I'm I'm excited to check check it out. Like I'm with Scott. I haven't really. I was a big big Marvel kid. That that was my my comic book obsession as as a kid was Marvel. But I never really got into Moon Knight at all. I was always into X Men and Spider Man. The you know the the easy things, the the popular sure. things. And I know that I've read some Moon Knight crossovers at some point. That there are times where he showed up uh, in in things that I'd read. But I, you know, I was excited. You know, for this in, in a way that I'm. Uh, not typically excited for Marvel stuff because I grew up reading so much of Avengers and Spider-Man and all that where I'm like, okay, I know what's coming up, but like Moon Knight's a complete blank for me. So like this, you know, this is going to be really my first um, exposure to this character outside of those memes you mentioned. So, right. Yeah. And I think a lot of people have that experience. Um, I mean, I, I certainly had that same experience where I grew up, you know, on military bases where there were only six comics to choose from. It was like amazing Spider-Man Avengers, classic X-Men reprints. Um, There's definitely no moon Knight, And so like my first experience with him was the Marvel trading cards that they put out in, back in the nineties. Mm, yeah. You kind of look through these cards of all the comics that I couldn't afford or couldn't track down. Right. Um, and, and you are just like, who the hell is this guy? Um, so, so it's, it's definitely one of their sort of, lesser known characters and, and, you know, that, that has its own benefits and and its own drawbacks. Like we had so much freedom to kind of make, to do whatever we wanted with the story and with the character and go in weird, unexpected directions and sort of 
you know, try to bring in some some genuine mindfuck weirdness to the MCU and and some some real horror and some actual scares, kind of because no one knows who the hell Moon Knight is. Um, mm-hmm. I, you know, if you're doing a Spider Man adaptation, if you're doing a Spider Man, uh, everyone knows you got to have Peter Parker in there, and and everyone knows what his powers are, and they yell at you if you don't get it right. And and here with Moon Knight, we really felt that freedom of we can kind of say and do anything we want um, as long as it's as long as it feels right to us and as long as Kevin Feige is vibing on it, um, we are sort of just sort of set loose to, um, and we had an amazing team of writers that were all just fucking geniuses and madmen, And, and really, I I think we really made something cool and special. So I'm, I'm psyched for people to check it out. I'm curious about this leeway because my understanding of Marvel is that they have all this shit planned out like way in advance. So when you were talking about the many different iterations of moon Knight what I was thinking was, well, where do you know when to start? And it, and then I thought, well, that'd probably just be a matter of where they're looking to take the character, right? Like, is that is that accurate? Like, did they have like a general like, well, here's ultimately what, where we want to go with the character. So you couldn't do this iteration. No, not really. Um, uh, the way I, I think Feige is really smart about the way he builds out the MCU in a sort of organic way where he doesn't get ahead of himself he, he, he really is like, okay, we're going to do the Eternals. We're going to do Moon Knight. We're going to do uh, WandaVision. We're going to do these big weird swings. But he doesn't have like five years of Moon Knight content sort of planned out. It's very much like, let's see how the audiences respond and let's see where we can kind of work it in there. Um, you know, when I came on board, when, when I heard they were looking for a writer for a Moon Knight show, they, they kind of had nothing to go on other than the fact that like they didn't want it to be Batman, which is very understandable. He's got a 80 year head start on us. We're not going to beat Batman at his own game. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we knew that Kevin um, was responding to the sort of uh, Egyptology uh, aspects of the character. He, he looked at the mental health and he looked at the sort of ancient Egyptian origins and kind of zeroed in on those are the two um, elements of the show that kind of make it unique. That's something we haven't done yet in the MCU. Uh, and so when I, came on board, I, I came in and I was like, look, I think a lot of people are going to be pitching you sort of Batman. They're going to be pitching you a, a dude in white pajamas beating up muggers in an alleyway. Um, and I want to come here and pitch you Raiders of the Lost Ark and and Ghostbusters. I want this big globe-trotting action show that's full of weirdness and mind games and monsters and magic and all sorts of shit. And, and I think it was, I think my taste probably just aligned with what Kevin was looking to do with the character. But but I don't think they have any idea where he's going next or is he going to be an Avenger? Is he going to be a good guy? Is he going to be a bad guy? Like it's, it's all, right all up in the air still. That's, That's cool. Good. I mean, I have to assume if you get somebody like Oscar Isaac to play, you know, a, a hero like this, that there somebody somewhere is hoping that, that uh, he's going to be playing this character for many years to come. You know, it's uh yeah, I don't think you cast him for a one and done. And, th- and that was what was really cool at the premiere last night is, is we got to watch the first two episodes with an audience, which you know, oh, it wow. doesn't always happen when you're writing with TV and, and, and you could, you could watch the audience kind of falling in love with, with Oscar's character in real time to the point where like when bad thing, when he would get rejected romantically or something like that, um, you, you heard every, all the people in the audience were like, Oh, and stuff like that, where you're just like, Oh, we got him. Like they're on board. They like him. And, and you know, because that's something you can never plan on. Like, are people going to respond to your main character? Are people going to want to see more, Moon Knight, and it helps when you have 
someone as, as, as fucking good as Oscar Isaac, um, a lot of, a lot of the heavy lifting is kind of done for you. So yeah, I, I'm sure we will be seeing him again many times in the MCU. Did Oscar have any trepidation about getting into the back into the superhero game uh, after yeah. X-Men Apocalypse? Yeah, I think he was terrified. Um, <laughs> like, I would be I, too. I, I, and and I, I saw people were asking him that question on, on the red carpet last night being like, well, now that they're bringing characters from other films, do you think Apocalypse is going to show up? And, and you could kind of see him kind of like gritting <laughs> Fuck, his teeth. I hope not. Like, and I'm like, please, <laughs> yeah. God, no. Maybe yeah, a still I, photograph. How about that? Yeah. But I ain't getting in that makeup again. Hell no. Uh, yeah, I, I saw him talking recently, like there was like, he was going over like all of his roles and stuff. And then they get to that and he was, you could see the light go out in his eyes <laughs> and he was just like, fuck man. He's like, I, I, what I can tell you about that is that I fucking hated that makeup and it was awful. And, and, and it gave me PTSD. <laughs> Look, it was a soul crushing experience to just fucking watch that movie. I can't make it. Yeah. I think he, I, I, I assume I don't want to speak for him, but I assume he probably, probably saw this as a chance for some level of redemption where like, we're not correction. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a six hour character study for a big portion of that. He's the only guy on screen. So, so we're definitely not burying him under mounds of shitty blue latex. <laughs> They're saving that one for the, uh, the second season. So. Yeah. <laughs> I'll never forget the part in that movie when he like, like apocalypse storms into a room and puts his hand on a television and someone's like, what are you doing? And he's like, learning. <laughs> it's like, oh boy, we are in for it on this one. <laughs> it's, it's one of those moments where you're like, I'm not sure the people who made this movie know how TVs work. <laughs> <laughs> mm. uh, before we jump into the Stephen King thing, I wanted to talk a little bit about... Uh, I wanted to circle back to something you talked about uh, right at the beginning, and that was the glorious early nineties, mid nineties heyday of the Marvel trading card. Yeah. Um, there's something when you mentioned that, like all this nostalgic imagery flooded my mind, the Marvel what was it? Marvel universe. I think it was what one of them was called. Yeah. And that was, that was the one that had like all the stats on the back, the power um, levels. Yeah. And yeah, exactly. And I remember, and the like, Marvel masterpieces, the Marvel mass, the Joe, Joe Jesco Marvel masterpieces were like probably the closest I got to a drug addiction in my life. I fucking bought so many of those. I used to shoplift those out of the fucking store when I could. I was a little <laughs> klepto then because I was like desperate to to get the um, uh, I think there was five total of the foil inserts yeah. mm-hmm. um and each one was a, a a versus so it was like spider-man versus venom and wolverine versus saber tooth and uh and i remember there was one time that i bought a pack out of a store that felt very thick and these packs at that time were like two or three bucks which at that time for for a pack of cards was astronomically expensive and and i remember going this is a thick pack i wonder if i you know if i got lucky and i opened it up and there were two foil inserts in there and you're usually only getting one per box and i i don't think i i felt like charlie finding the fucking golden ticket you know it's like but i love that era of of that stuff and apparently all those cards are are becoming extremely valuable now like apparently during the pandemic uh 
like just their value skyrocketed as people were like stuck at home with their, uh, their check. They, they were getting their stimulus checks and stuff and didn't have anything to go out and spend it on. So they were like, apparently the price of, of those era cards were going through the roof uh, because the card collectors started treating them like rookie cards. So if you have like the first Deadpool card, like that one now, if you have a, a high graded one is worth thousands of dollars. Whereas oh, like, just don't tell me this stuff. Yeah, no, exactly. Up to like four or five years ago, like I, I've sold those at garage sales before in my childhood and, and in my adulthood and, and even had them like in a recent garage sale, like five, six years ago, uh, just as any, just take these cause I don't want these anymore and nobody took them. So I probably still have them in my, you know, in my, uh, in my garage somewhere. So I, I don't know. I love those cards so much. Uh, what was the, um, was it the second or the third run that had the hollow foil, um, like the the 3D lenticular um, mm. variant cards? Uh, that was the I think the second of the universe ones because I got yeah. the, the they had like the Wolverine one right where he had, his claws are like coming at you when you like turn the card. Is oh, that the one was, you're thinking it of? Was the best shit ever. I, I right. was obsessed with those cards. It makes me wonder, as a Stephen King fan, why why don't we have a Stephen King card set like that? Look at all the great art from his books. Uh, I think That's you a good just idea. on a hell of a Kickstarter idea, Mr. <laughs> mm, yeah, I think there might be a little bit of a rights issue with <laughs> that'd be a, a bit of a tangle. Nah, we'll just do knockoffs, dude. We'll do, you know, uh, Jack Lenny, <laughs> Lenny wise, yeah. <laughs> Lenny wise. <laughs> you make we'll like the garbage some... pail kids of Stephen King cards. Yeah. Fuck man. That's what we should have done for April fools is a, uh, uh, we announce NFTs <laughs> and we're doing knockoff Stephen, NFT, Stephen King NFTs because we don't have the rights. God damn it. Yeah. <laughs> All the good ideas come too late. It, it, the final episode of the King Cash should be you guys just getting sued by Stephen King's lawyers. <laughs> Some NFT breach. We're very careful with That's our merch. That's perfect. Yes. <laughs> well, since we're on the Stephen King subject, uh, Slater, what is your Stephen King origin story? Uh, my Stephen King origin story. Um, like I said, I, I was uh, an Air Force brat, a uh, military brat growing up. And and I lived in like 19 places in 14 years uh, as a kid. Um, we would we would move every three or four months because my dad had one of those jobs where he would come in and sort of supervise uh, and, and train a group. And then he would move on to a different mm-hmm. town. Um, and it made school work kind of impossible for me because I was always arriving after the school year had started or leaving halfway through. Um, and so I was homeschooled for a couple of those years. And my mom sort of had no interest in in actually teaching me math or science or or anything you would actually learn in school. And so, and so she was always just like, just go read books. Um, and, and then I'll sign off and say, you did all your schoolwork. Um, and, and so I had a crazy, um, a really high reading ability from a really young age. Um, and, and so I kind of bypassed Goosebumps and R.L. Stein and, and everything else that my peers were kind of reading. And I was like, I'm just going to go straight to the real thing. And so I, I just, I think it was the first, uh, was the first Stephen King book I read. And, and just, I was maybe eight or nine at the time. So I was, I was kind of like the age of the actual characters and right. just traumatized the living hell out of me. And, and I was hooked ever since. Um, and I, I really had to sort of hide my Stephen King books like they were playboys or something, because I had very religious, very strict parents who were convinced at the time that 
this was the eighties. It was, we were in the middle of like satanic panic and all that mm-hmm. shit. And so they did not want those kind of books in the house. So I, I would check them out from libraries. I would, I would hide them around the house. I, I had a stack of Stephen King paperbacks instead of porno shoved underneath my bed, which probably <laughs> tells you a lot about me as a child. Um, but, but yeah, I've still he, never seen a naked woman in fact. And <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I would love to know what they look like. Um, <laughs> Yeah, well, maybe so, if Moon Knight's so a really big hit, you'll find a, a lovely woman. You know, settle down. Yeah, so he's been my my favorite author since I was since I was old enough to have a favorite author. I guess I, I've been reading and and devouring everything he's written um, my entire life. It feels yeah. like. Yeah, well, and it's there's a weird thing that happens because I'm I'm in the same boat as you, except I don't think I was. A, exceptionally gifted. I just think that I dove into the deep end. I, I didn't under, probably didn't understand half of what I was reading, but I, I kind of skipped. I must've bought some goosebumps books at like scholastic fairs and shit, but like outside of the covers, I never really got into them. I think I read what are the, the, the crazy, the black and white uh, illustrated ones. Oh, um, scary stories to tell, in the dark. to tell in the dark. Yeah. Yeah. That book rules. Yeah. No, uh, that one I remember reading and I must've read that before King, but but what's weird about reading Stephen King first is you get you read that stuff and you read it or you read something like Cujo or whatever and you're like, oh wow, Pet Cemetery. It's like this is what books are. This is you know this is the there's a million of these things. They're they're all going to be great. And then you start reading other stuff and you're like, wait a minute, none of this is as good as what I started with. Yeah, nothing else comes close. You know, I'm sure that King himself would would argue against that, but uh, you know, it just just in in my experience, it's like. You know, the the drop of quality, because as a kid, you don't think that way. You just go, oh, I read a good book. That means all books are good, you know, and uh, and then you start reading other stuff and you're like, well, wait a minute. Why? Why is this one? Why am I having trouble finishing this one? Yeah. Well, especially in the horror genre, you're, you're just like, oh, yeah, I guess this is just a reputable literary genre. And everyone loves horror and the books are great. And then you go read what passes for this sort of state of modern horror outside of Stephen King. Um, and, and I think, I think today there's a lot of incredible authors in that space. I think Paul Tremblay and Joe Hill and like, you can go on and on. Right. But I think especially in the eighties when there was a lot of people sort of chasing Stephen King's success, everything else fucking sucked, man. It was terrible. <laughs> yeah. I'm doing my best not to, uh, jump into the, uh, Dean Koontz lander, but, uh, I'll say uh, it for you. Fuck Dean Koontz. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were a good egg, Jeremy. Have you have you read much Kuntz, Jeremy? Um, yes, I, I read sort of his initial, probably first ten novels during that period where I was just de- where I'd read everything from King, and I was just sort of desperate for more horror content. Yes, and, yes. You know, I like intensity. I think that's a his best book. Um, and and that's about it. Intensity's <laughs> all right. Intensity's fine. It's yeah. He saw high tension, and he wrote a book about it. That's the thing. Yeah, we, <laughs> yeah, I've heard that. Yeah. yeah, when we started the show, we decided right off the bat that Dean Koontz was somehow going to be like the nemesis of this show, which <laughs> is nemesis of everything good. <laughs> just which you know, uh, we just thought it would be p- funny if a Stephen King podcast considered Dean Koontz like the big bad, uh, and. <laughs> We're like very quickly people got on like we were th- I remember like within the first few weeks of operation, we were like, well, if we get X number of followers by the end of the day, we're going to go toilet paper Dean Koontz's house. And I like <laughs> posted a picture of like Dean Koontz's house and uh, people got really upset. 
No, they yeah. were not. They were like, well, how dare you belittle this old man who has done nothing <laughs> but good things for the horror genre. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Can we all just calm down? We're not going to go fucking egg and toilet paper Dean Koontz's house if enough people don't follow us. Like, just Fuck remain off, calm. Fans. Take your... Take yeah. your poorly written and badly spelled complaints somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you'll be hearing from those folks. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> the title that you brought us today is, is Desperation. This is a, t- a title we've only covered on the show uh, once before, um, some months back. Um, would you mind doing the honors of explaining what this book is about? You don't got to go beat by beat, but just, you know, the, the general plot to kick us uh, off. The general plot is is a young couple's uh, driving across the desert and they get stopped by a highway patrolman um, who finds drugs in their car and, and places them under arrest and starts taking them back to Desperation, which is a little sort of mining town in the middle of nowhere. And as they're on the way, um, they start to realize that this cop has lost his fucking mind and is incredibly dangerous. And then they arrive in the town of Desperation to find that everyone is dead, that there are dead dogs nailed to the side of the road and crucified. And he's got a bunch of terrified hostages um, in the, in the prison cell. And all of these characters are sort of thrust into this nightmare, you know, in the first 10 pages of the book, it really just sort of hits the ground running and doesn't really slow down after that. For people, you know, in, in our age range, I think the desperation and the regulators have like a special place in our heart. Because this was like when I was in full-throated Stephen King obsessive mode and, and paying attention to what his new stuff was. And there was a big advertising push around this one because this was the return of Richard Bachman, the, yeah. the pseudonym. And this is going to be one book was the Stephen King version of a story. And the other book was kind of Richard Bachman's version of, of a similar story. And and the, like the covers like lined up together and, you you know, the artwork on them and, and all that stuff. Um, I think it's worth kind of pointing out that that's something that might get lost if people are coming to King now. They were huge <laughs> events. It, it was, it was, I remember walking past like a, it wasn't a Barnes and Noble, whatever. It was a bookstore that no like longer a B. Dalton or something. Yeah, yeah. Waltons or something like that. And they had like one, um, one of the, the windows was all regulators and the other window was all desperation. Like they were dueling <laughs> or something. And it was right. just, it was this event. It was, which one are you going to read first? Um, Cause the, the, I think the order that you read them in, changes the second book because you're now familiar with the character names and you start picking up the echoes that he's sort of laid in there. Right. Um, so, so it was, it was a really cool event and it also felt like one of the last kind of pure Stephen King is just trying to scare the hell out of you books. Mm. Um, because I feel like he had his accident, not, you know, I might maybe getting the timelines wrong, but in my mind, it feels like those were, were some of his last kind of books, before the accident and you know and i think his writing style and his outlook on life and everything sort of changed following that and so yeah it, it sort of feels like the, the the end of a certain phase of his career um like in a really sort of very cool fitting capstone way to speak to that event side of things there was also you know it was, i think it was right after this when the uh green mile uh, releases happened and where yeah. he released them in those mini novella things. I just, there's no events like that. I mean, there's, we barely get event cinema, you know, we get our, uh, the superhero cinema and star Wars maybe, but uh, uh, like on the book side, I can't think of the last time there would have been 
you know, news stories about books or, you know, an event like that. It's, it's pretty crazy when you think about it. I, I know that we're kind of biased because we, we run a, a Stephen King podcast, but like there, I can't think of another author, JK Rowling, I guess maybe, yeah. you know, around the Harry Potter releases, but even that, what they, they were events, but they weren't, you know, I don't know. They, they didn't have a gimmick like that, that, that would work in, in, in drive people, you know, insane. Yeah, it, it was really King at sort of the height of his popularity and the height of his power. He he was like, he's that one literary superstar. There's no one else who can have people lining up to buy a fucking book these days except for Stephen King and and back in the day, J.K. Rowling. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's cool. And I, and I also just think that like, I think Desperation is underloved. It's not A-tier Stephen King if, if you're ranking his stuff. And, and like, when I say ranking... I'm, I'm saying just ranking his own works against each other because like right. you know, the worst book Stephen King's ever written is still better than the best book Dean Koontz has ever written. <laughs> yes. I'm still going with it. Koontz fans <laughs> fucking um, but, but I, I think like if you're ranking King's stuff, you know, there's obviously the a tier with, with his masterpieces and that's where you get the stand it fucking all seven dark tower books. Um, mm-hmm. revival, like all of his sort of stone cold classics. And then I would argue desperation is right underneath that. It is, it is the B plus of, of Stephen King novels. Mm-hmm. It is so close to being like a stone cold masterpiece. And it's it, both that and regulators are just, they're just fucking good reads, man. Yeah. Well, well, speaking to that, you mentioned <clears throat> that you read one of those first and which one did you read first? Did you read desperation first? Read desperation read- first. Yeah. Yeah. I went in that order too. I don't know. That'd be a really interesting question. I wonder if anybody out there read the Bachman one first. There I must. Think, be I think I might have. Yeah, you think so? I think I. Well, I think I might have because I think it's shorter, isn't it? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And so I remember my parents getting me both of the books for, you know, Christmas that year or, or whatever. Um, I would have been away at school at the time, but I. I but I remember getting them and having to pick and I don't remember which one, but if I had to guess, I'd say I went with the shorter one. Interesting. Cause yeah, I was I, fucking lazy. Cause I'm a teenager, you know, <laughs> well, regulators had a cool cover too. Like it, it like it, they desperation, desperation promised horror. It promised like, this is scary. And regulators kind of promised weirdness. It, that's mm, very really, true. It, it, it had like a sci-fi vibe to it where you're like, this does not feel like traditional King. And also like, He's writing under a pseudonym and, and you kind of want to see like, well, why? Like, like, how is it different? What's he doing in this book that he can't do under his own name? Um, so I get that. That'd be worth exploring, though, you know, maybe sometime in the future of like, because I, I'm speaking of this, like I, I reread Desperation um, earlier this year, or I guess earlier or late last year whenever we had uh, Laura Lux on uh, to do her episode, that's because I hadn't read it since they came out, uh, but I haven't had that same prompt for the regulators yet. So the regulators is very, very vague in my mind um, right now. Like I, I couldn't tell you fuck all about it. If you asked me, ask me about it without like some prompting. Um, I remember liking it when I read it, but uh, desperation was definitely through and through um, the Stephen King doing what he does best kind of kind of stuff because you have that like kid protagonist there's not like a main character in this there's a a bunch of main characters but uh you know but one of the main characters is this you know kind of little religious kid this jesus kid um (laughs) (laughs) he's a pious he's he's the shittiest kid he's ever written 
David Carver. David Carver fucking sucks. He is the biggest problem with that novel. Um, Cause all the other characters are really cool. Like I like Johnny Marinville, like Mm -hmm. uh, King has so many sort of writer surrogates where he sort of is inserting himself into the story. Um, And you can obviously point to like dozens of examples, but, but Johnny is cool because he's the sort of the rock star version of, of King himself. Mm -hmm. Um, He's the dude who, you know, he drives around the country on a Harley and he's wearing leather jackets and sort of pissing into the wind. And it's very clearly like his sort of cool alter ego, but he's going through all the same things that the traditional like King mega successful horror writer protagonist goes through. He's, he's experiencing those same crisis of, of faith and am I a hack? Am I a sellout? Um, but he's doing it through the sort of lens of, of music, which I think is makes him much more interesting than the sort of traditional King stand in. Um, it's just full of cool characters, man. All of them except for the kid. But you don't, but you don't like poor little Davy Carver. Yeah. Elaborate on the kid for a bit. The, the kid is desperation is, is King grappling with religion. It, it's, it, it, yeah. it, he really is grappling with the question of the, the entire book is about how can a loving God create <laughs> a cruel world? Um, right. Why do good things happen to bad people? Um, and, and it's him grappling with his faith. And the way he does that is through the character of David He's he's really a choir boy, man. Every conversation he has is about God. Um, he he's he's Rod and Todd Flanders to some extent, where <laughs> he's a real kid, and instead he's like, God spoke to me, um, and 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 God is constantly giving him sort of messages and hints and helping out, and and he quickly becomes this sort of preternaturally wise. Um, child sage who just kind of has all the right answers and right. and he's always calm when the adults are falling apart and he he really kind of doesn't have any interesting flaws or characteristics he just sort of exists to suffer because everyone around him keeps dying horribly his entire family gets just mulched right this. <laughs> um and and david is, is just this sort of job-like character who just sort of weathers it all um and 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 yeah, it it the, the parts of the book that don't work are are the parts where David just sort of um, runs the show, evangelizes a little bit. Yeah. yeah, it's it's a it's it's definitely his most God heavy book, and that's not a problem, but it's a problem when it becomes monotonous. And and there's parts where that kid, um, I don't care how patient you are, he's going to grate on your fucking nerves. <laughs> that's interesting you say that because uh you know we we've long had a discussion about king and organized religion and his thoughts on it on the show because you look at something like revival or the mist or you know the the dead zone or any of these characters that that have religious a religious character they're almost always evil fucking bad guys and it's very rare that he has a, a a christian character in his books that uh is good and david carver is one of them um, but uh, when you kind of lay it out that way, it's it's you're not wrong, and it and it's kind of striking because the only other character I can think of immediately is Mother Abigail, um, yeah. and mm-hmm. she has crises of faith and makes the wrong decisions and doesn't always have all the answers, you know, when when they're needed, and so it's like the his version of the touched by God kind of character. Um, and the stand is way more complex and interesting than, than the one in desperation. And I never really kind of put my finger on it until you, you went on your fuck that kid tirade. Just now. <laughs> a 
classic fuck that kid tangent. Um, yeah, Sorry, no. Dean Koontz. Sorry, pious children. You're getting fucked today on the yeah. podcast. Koontz and kids, you're both on blast. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think I think it's it's exactly what you say, Eric. It's it's the fact that Mother Abigail is still human. She still has flaws. She still fails at times. And and David is a plot device. He's not a character. Right. Um, and and he he exists to sort of to sort of give voice to the themes of the novel and to get them out of some sticky situations. But you, you can tell that it's not where King's heart is. Like he, he's writing about Johnny and Steve and, and Audrey and these other characters and Tom and Cynthia he's yeah. really getting into, like he goes deep into some of their backstories. You, you can tell he really relates and adores some of these characters and the kid is just the kid. Hmm. Yeah, I really like his backstory. I think the the part of David Carver I like the most is when you get into that that kind of uh, the reason why he found God or whatever. When he makes that deal with God to save his friend who got hit by the the car and was like brain dead and dying, like that that was the time that the character was most alive in those flashbacks. Um, and I and I will t- say I also really bought his the. Uh, his connection with his sister who we never, we don't see die. Like she's dead by the time we yeah. meet, meet these characters. But like, as you said, he's kind of there to suffer and you'd think that he would be a little bit more angry or conflicted about it. Um, and he isn't, he, he, he's like a, just a, a, a I don't know, a sainted monk, you know, yeah. kind of going he through, doesn't have through everything. this crisis yeah. of faith until the very end of, of the novel where he, he kind of breaks down and, and kind of says, this is unfair. I did everything I was supposed to do. Why did my whole family die? But, but at, at that point, like I had lost all sympathy for him. So what should mm-hmm. have been like emotionally devastating. I was just kind of like, yeah, that's what you get. <laughs> Like, <laughs> if Tack had won at the end, maybe that would have changed your view on the character, right? Because then it's a little bit more like um, uh, the Darabont version of The Mist, right? Where yeah. you have the good guy who's been doing the right things the entire movie. And they go, no, nope, fuck you. You lose. Oh, God, that'd be amazing. <laughs> I would love that ending, though. I'll tell you yeah. what. I think the other problem with it, and this is something we actually grappled with a lot when we were doing the uh, the Exorcist show, is mm. is how much can you make God a character in the book or mm. in the show, um, before, or how much can you make God a presence before he, he, God becomes a character? Because right. because there are there are elements of this of desperation where divine intervention is sort of implied and then there's elements where it's just straight up divine intervention where there's no ambiguity about it you you can you can debate whether or not the kid the friend waking up from his coma is an actual act of god or whether david just thinks it's an act of god right but uh, but david starts getting like actual messages from on high he starts getting sort of information <laughs> passed to him by god yeah like through notes on a treehouse or something right yeah and and that's yeah. where it becomes weird for me because once god is taking an active rooting interest in the story it's like well now i know how it's going to end i know the good guys are going to win because god's not going to lose he's not going to get beaten by a bunch of coyotes um (laughs) my problem is like i i I always feel like faith is stronger and it's more inspiring when when it's when you have to take that leap of faith when it's when it's deductive and and emotional versus based on like yes god clearly exists because he just showed us how to get out of this jail cell um (laughs) so i just think they go a little king goes a little bit too hard with the god stuff um but but I think 
other than that, Desperation is an amazing read. Um, mm. It sounds like I'm shitting on the book that I chose. <laughs> I really do love it intensely. Um, I, I tried to get the rights to it. I tried to, very hard to to make it and, and to get the rights from ABC and it just didn't happen. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. I remember you mentioning at some point, it, it, did you say it was you and Sam Raimi were trying to, yeah. trying to do it? Well, I, I, I had a meeting with Raimi's company um, and I was coming off of doing the Tommy knockers. Um, and they said, you know, are there any, what are the other S- Stephen King books out there? What are the white whales that sort of haven't either haven't been adapted yet or haven't had this sort of definitive adaptation? And right. I, was, I was like immediately like desperation. Like that is the one that if you did it right would be memorable and terrifying and, and, and feels weirdly relevant with the last few years of police brutality and being afraid of fucking cops. Um, and and so I was just really passionate about it. So we went into ABC who owns the rights to it, uh, because they did the original TV miniseries, um, and just kind of begged them to give it to us. Uh, and the problem was everyone at ABC was really, really nice and really cool. And I don't want to throw anyone under the bus, but they were just kind of in a weird, tricky situation where, where the hell does something like desperation fit in the Walt Disney company? You know, it's right. not going to air on ABC. It's not going to air on Disney plus kind of Hulu was the only possible home for a show like this. And at the time they had castle rock and they yeah. were really sort of devoting a lot of time and a lot of marketing into, into saying like, this is our big Stephen King adaptation. Um, and they didn't necessarily want something like desperation to come along and muddy the waters or confuse anything. Um, and, and, and I think there were also questions of like, could this be an ongoing series instead of a movie or a mini series? And I'm like, Nope, I don't think so. I think it, I think at some point this town is just going to run out of people, man. Um, <laughs> I don't know if anyone wants to be on season six of desperation and still trying to figure out, Oh, here comes another caravan of hippies pulling it down something bad's going to happen to them um so it's just one of those things where look they they loved sam raimi and obviously really wanted to be in business with him and they were they were polite and very tolerant of me um but but it was just one of those things where it it didn't make sense for them for some very sort of obvious reasons was was raimi planning to executive produce or also direct I don't think he had any interest in, in, in directing. I think his dance card's probably pretty busy. Um, but, but, you know, he, he is, is obviously a great producer. You know, he, he did my sure. buddy Yarvo's uh, night books movie, um, yeah. which is phenomenal and is on Netflix and you guys should all go check out. Uh, and, and yeah, like I, he, he, he showed up for the meeting and, and, Sam is just the best, man. He's everything you, you, it was my only time meeting him was at that pitch meeting. Um, but he's just everything you would want Sam Raimi to be. He's so right. nice. He's so kind. He's so smart. Um, and, and he had a lot of really s- smart insights about the novel. He had read it and he was a fan of it. Um, so I don't think he would have directed it, but who the hell knows? Yeah. Uh, in an alternate, there, there is a multiverse of madness where Sam Raimi is directing <laughs> desperation right now. Season six. <laughs> So do you not think there's a version of this that could exist as a feature film? I think there's definitely a feature version of it. I think at the time we probably positioned it as a mini series um, because we, we thought that that would be more appealing to Hulu. But, but I, I think a feature film version would run into the same problems of who the hell is going to release this thing because it's not going to be the Disney Corporation. Right. Um, and, and no, but they're, they're not, also not, 
And they're also not going to want to give up the rights. You know, they, they, this isn't a business where you go, well, we don't have a place for it. So somebody else should do it. They'd be like, <laughs> they're going to hoard that gold while they have it, you know? Yeah. It's just one of those things where you never give up the rights to another studio because then if they come out and, and have a, a hit on the level of it or something like that, everyone gets fired. Um, yep. <laughs> so, so I understand their reasoning for it, but it's still, it's a bummer because I, I think there is a movie there. I think there is a show there or a mini series no. um, that would be really relevant and really scary. And I was just, I was so passionate about doing it and you know, it's just, it's the one that got away. I'm honestly surprised to hear that they still have the rights. Hasn't it been like nearly 20 years since Garris did that? Yeah. I think it's, I think they just permanently own it. I, I have yeah, no idea. That's wild. I mean, that's I not, know that's uncommon with king shit. Well, yeah. it's uncommon with king shit if it's something's not made, correct? Because I think that what happens with king is that if he gives you the rights to something, uh, you get like a year to make it happen, and if it doesn't happen, yeah. he gets it back. But I think once it's made, then then maybe the the rights get stickier, and it's not like it all just reverts instantly back to king again. Like uh, you couldn't make an it spinoff by optioning it from King at this point, you'd have to go through Warner brothers. Right. So that's right. Yeah. It's very interesting when you, when you consider what this could be, because, you know, I, I revisited the McGarris version and, you know, I I think that it has, uh, uh, it suffers a little bit from just being a TV thing of the era it was made, but still fucking Ron Perlman kills it as Kali. Kali and Trajan is the, uh, the cop character we meet at the beginning. And he's this kind of larger than life. He's funny and, and, you know, like humorously funny and charming and also scary as fuck. Um, and it, I, I think that when people think of desperation, at least when I think of desperation, like I, I think of Kali, which is funny because he's only in about the first quarter of the, the book. And then he he goes away, but he gets to be how you meet the entity that's kind of taking over uh, bodies and living under this town. Um, uh, And it's through this character. And as you said, you know, the fact that it's a cop that he, you know, takes over this large cop, no less, you know, this intimidating, you know, big uh, bear of a guy. It's a really striking image, I think. Was that your experience as well, both of you guys? Well, I I said on the previous uh, desperation episode we did, and I, and I still believe it, that the problem is that Perlman is so fucking good in the role that you want to keep watching him. And then when he's out of the picture, the the whole thing kind of suffers for it because he's right. left such a, a huge impression in that in that little uh, amount of time. And I, I get a little bit of that from the novel because you're kind of sad to see that character go. But in the miniseries, it's like it's like Ron Perlman kicked its ass too much. <laughs> and 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 now you got a balancing issue because you know you're missing that that very exciting element for the rest of the show you know that's um that's my take on it anyway. yeah right. it's like poochie it's it's like whenever poochie's not on screen all <laughs> words poochie. um yeah I, I said before i think there's i think there's two problems with desperation that really keep it off the a tier of of stephen king the, the first is is just the david carver God stuff is, is, is grating and monotonous. And the other problem is that Kali is, is a top five Stephen King villain. Mm. He is so fucking scary. He is so charismatic. Um, and he's scary in such a grounded way because we've all had those run-ins 
with shitty police officers. We've all, we all know those people who, who went into law enforcement that should not be cops and sort of get off on the power. We've all seen the sort of horrors that sort of unchecked police brutality have, have sort of wrought across America in the last few years. Like, he, Kali is one of the best villains King has ever created, and he makes such an impression in those first in 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 those first maybe two hundred pages, and and then he just sort of fucks off and dies off screen. Yep. And it is so, like, he, <laughs> he he turns into Dominic Toretto for for like for like a hundred pages of the book where he's just sort of joyriding up and down the main street and sort of whipping kitties and firing his shotgun into the air. And and he just seems like he's having a grand old time, but he's not really that scary. Um, and then he just proceeds to start body jumping and and tack the sort of demonic uh, entity that's the villain of the of the thing. Just sort of then becomes a progression of jumping into different characters and different animals. And the problem is none of them are Kali, and and frankly, none of them make the impression that Kali did. And and so. That was definitely something that we talked a lot about a lot um, when we were pitching to ABC. And, and, and that was sort of my one big deviation from the source material where I was like, look, I would not kill Kali. I, 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 you can keep some of the yeah, body man, swapping stuff because I do think the animal stuff is important. Um, and, and it does give him, it does give the bad guy a legitimate reason for keeping the, the his prisoners alive right. that he wants he's, he's going to need some more bodies to jump into um but but losing him sort of really lets the air out of this the story in a major way um it's a fumble that i don't think it really recovers from um even though tack winds up being really scary by the end of it thanks to the china pit and thanks to right. to you know some of the stuff that happens in the very end which i don't want to spoil because people should go read this book um, but, but uh, yeah, I, I, I think there is a version of this movie or this mini series that transforms Kali into one of those Pennywise villains alongside, you know, he's not as good as Pennywise. He's not as good as Jack Torrance, but he's up there, man. He's, he is close. He is nipping at their heels and, and it, it really is a shame. Uh, it, I, I almost want King to, to do a sequel or find a way to bring Kali back just because I think he was really onto something there. And, and he sort of, it seems like he gets distracted by the body snatchers of it all. Right. And, and, and the fun of sort of building in a mystery of, of who, whose body is he hiding in now? And, and as an audience member, I'm just like, yeah, but I was scared before. Like right. I didn't want a mystery. I wanted to be terrified. Um, and you kind of took that away from me. So Enjoy Kali while he's around is what I'm saying. Uh, <laughs> fucking great in those first 200 pages. Right. Yeah, he is. Well, and, and I, I do love the conceit of tack. Keep, he keeps fucking getting into sick people and, or it keeps getting yeah. into sick people. And, and just like when he gets in, what I think it's, um, uh, the mother, right. It's, um, David Carver's mother, he, he yeah. jumps into, oh, yeah. and because she has a yeast infection, like she just starts instantly melting the second, because the whole concept of this thing is that when it takes you over, it's kind of like burning through you. And if you have any kind of disease, it like accelerates the yeah. amount of time that it can like live within this body before the body just gets used up and is falling apart. Uh, that concept's rad. And but but you're right. Like I, I don't know how you balance that uh, 
that really funny and it, you know because it is funny it's really funny that you have this incredibly ancient powerful force that keep just fuck everybody's got cancer you know <laughs> everybody's got something that he can't it can't stay alive with you know and that's why it wants like uh, it thinks it wants at the beginning anyway uh this uh little jesus boy because sure surely this kid's not sick right and and uh i don't know i love that angle of it but i also have to agree with you that like you know if you burn out collie the way that they that he uh, he gets burned out then you know it just it kind of deflates the the threat um and and you feel that in the book you feel that in the miniseries yeah yeah and when it, and i also think you know and and this is a common sort of running i guess motif in in king's work but it's like there are things that he, King manages to make really scary and really grounded on the page because he's such a phenomenal writer. But then the challenge is how do you film that? How do you do that in live action? Mm. How do you, how do you do a really bad yeast infection in a desperation <laughs> movie um, and, and not have it be the grossest shit ever? Like there's, it's, right. it, there are things that are really difficult to film. And, and I think, I think the Mick Garris miniseries just sort of defaults to everyone just sort of turns into sort of melting zombies at some point right. with their sort of skin sloughing off. And it's fun, but it's a different kind of horror for me. Right. Desperation isn't a gross out book necessarily. It, it's, it's a very intense kind of psychological thriller. And so when everyone just sort of becomes a, a shambling zombie, um, it, it, it just, it feels like we're veering away from what made it special in the first place. Right. So I agree. There's some really hard to film stuff in that book. <laughs> Well, 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 the dulcet tones of Rob Zombie once again brings us back to our mid-roll ad read. The KingCast is once again sponsored by Athletic Greens, which is a product Scott and I use literally every day. Every day. Every single day. While we are both fine specimens of humanity in the prime of our lives, everybody could use a little vitamin boost from time to time, even your mm. beloved KingCast hosts. Lots of people take some kind of multivitamin, and it's important to choose one with high-quality ingredients. Don't you agree, Scott? Yes. Tell them. And so why not use Athletic Greens like we do? With one tasty scoop in a glass of water, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens. The all-important adaptogens. We, we definitely know what that is. Adaptogens, uh, yes. Love adaptogens. Yeah, those are, those are the best. That's what gives it the oomph, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. But you do that, you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, aging, all the things. It even supports mental clarity and alertness, which is something Scott and I both need while recording this show. Yes. Also, it is recommended by pro athletes, not just Tubby Podcast hosts, so you know it's legit. <laughs> right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition, especially heading into the flu and cold season. I think we've been in the flu and cold season for a long time. Every day's flu and cold season now. It's the yes, new normal. It sure is. It's cheaper than purchasing all the separate ingredients yourself and all for less than $3 a day. One scoop and a cup of water every time. Boom, you're done. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you got to do to earn those little bonuses is visit athleticgreens.com slash kingcast. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash kingcast to take ownership over your health and pick up your ultimate daily nutritional insurance. 
Now, with all of that said, let's get back to the show. Yeah, and then you start getting into all the weird stuff about, uh, what's his name, Marinville's like atheism clashing against the Christianity and his like his Vietnam flashbacks and stuff that he's having and and how that plays in with, with everything. It, get, it starts getting a little muddied, but, uh, it, but it makes sense when you're reading it. But I can see how that's a challenge for anybody making, you know, an adaptation of the story and making it make sense and not feel kind of contrived. We touched on the existence of uh, the regulators earlier. I'm I'm curious, just for the record, since that was like this the sister novel here, uh, yeah. Jeremy, what you thought of that one? I love the regulators. It is by far the most unfilmable thing Stephen King has ever written. Um, <laughs> I mean, because it was written at a time where sort of mass shootings were very rare. Like they they right. they kind of didn't exist in America, and and the idea of having vans just drive through a neighborhood and start murdering people for no reason. It felt sci-fi. It felt far-fetched in, in a really fun way. And I think, I think doing that now, um, you know, when can you release something like that where it's not going to coincide with some horrible school shooting or something like that? It's, right. it's impossible. And I also think like, look, it's the, the, not to, to spoil the entire thing, but the whole plot of regulators kind of, Uh we need to euthanize a mentally handicapped child like it's it's a hard (laughs) sell for america you know yeah there's some things that you just can't do in movies and 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 that's one of them uh so problematic it's but it but it's a hell of a read man it yeah wasn't that the one where it was like a peck and paw screenplay or something like that yeah 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 it was called the shotgunners it's one of that's one of my white whales in terms of hunting down rare scripts um and i've told the story on the the show before so I'll, i'll tell you the short version but i tracked down one of the only copies that exists is known to exist is in a a bunch of uh stephen king paperwork that he donated to the university of uh bangor oh wow university of maine in bangor and they have a lot of his papers you can like you students can see like the original manuscript for the gunslinger and stuff like that in there. Um, but you have to make an appointment and you have to get approved by his office to, to uh, look at that stuff. And I went through like all the process through the library to get to the approval stage and his office said, Nope. Uh, but I'm like, I really wanted to read uh, the shotgunners. Cause that was the one it was, I think his first script that he ever wrote, um, and it was an original script. It wasn't an adaptation of one of his stuff. And Sam Peckinpah was going to direct it. You know, uh, when that didn't happen, Peckinpah died. The the movie died as well. And uh, and then he turned took a lot of that and put it into the regulators. That's the rumor, anyway. So my God, can you imagine? Oh, would have been maybe so- yeah. maybe, uh, maybe we can do that. Like if we, uh, you know, now that we've had King on the show, maybe I can actually finally get my uh, approval to to go. To go view that yeah. stuff. I think you've earned a little do you know who I am cred. Right. In two years of running <laughs> a, a Stephen King, King podcast. Right. <laughs> uh, I think the other thing that's awesome about regulators, and we touched on this before, but but a lot of the characters overlap, but they overlap in in very different ways. Like hmm. like the Carver family in um in desperation, David is is the boy. And in regulators, David is the father. And there, there's things that are flipped like that. Mm. You know, Kali is still an off-duty cop, um, but he's the first one to die or the second one to die. He gets gunned down while he's just like washing his car in, in, 
in the driveway where right. you're like, holy shit, they just killed Cully and Trajan and, and we're on like page 10 of this. Um, so it, it's really shocking to see some of these characters get introduced and, just, and, and some of them line up almost exactly and feel like the exact same characters almost in, in, in a very fun, like quantum leap way. And right. others are just wildly different. And it's clear that he just used the name, but but it's it's unlike anything he's done before, where where these weird echoes and and phrases keep showing up, and and you can tell how much the books sort of inspired each other. They they really read as sort of companion pieces, even though thematically and plot wise they have nothing in common. Um, everyone has to read Desperation if you are a King fan, but you really need to read Regulators immediately afterwards. To they they have to be read back to back to really get the full effect of what King is doing. Um, it's it's fucking cool, man. Yeah, it, as you're saying that, I know that uh, we're all in agreement that the Regulators isn't uh, ever going to get made, but it like really does strike uh, an excitement chord in me. If, if somebody did a desperation and then followed it up, you know, with the season two and desperation's its own story. And then like immediately follow it. I imagine like say HBO did it like the outsider. Right. Yeah. And then they instantly follow it up with, you know, versions of some of the same characters we've seen and how really kind of rad. And, you know, and you know, we talked about event television. You can make that an event. Say it's like, here's something that's popular. And now here's, an alternate take. Um, maybe uh, that's a little American horror story, right? Uh, maybe that's what I'm, I'm thinking of is that because they're, yeah. they share the same, a lot of the same cast or whatever, but imagine that, but also the, they're playing kind of alternate universe versions of the, the, the same characters as well. You know? Yeah. It's, I mean, you're pitching what if American horror story was good. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you, Dean Koontz. Um, Fuck you, religious kids. No, I'm I'm with Jeremy very very strongly on this one. Um, right. <laughs> here's what happens every season on American Horror Story. <laughs> Have I already said this on the show before? I oh yeah, like but go for it. It's no, I fucking I'm just repeating myself at this point. No, well for just for Jeremy, what happens with American Horror Story every season is it's got some wild ass premise. You know, so the first few episodes are like, what the fuck is going on? And everyone's real hype. And then the next three episodes, it, it starts to kind of rattle and shake on on the on its rails. And people are like, uh, I don't know about this. And then, like, there's a stretch to the very end where people are just hate watching. It. And then they <laughs> say, I love American Horror Story. And they do it all again the next season. Like this, that is it, the emperor's new clothes as a right. as a TV show. If I have ever seen one, right? It's it's every season ends with people going, "What the fuck is this? This is stupid. Why do we watch this?" And then at the beginning of every new season, it's always, "Ooh, this one's interesting. This one sounds interesting. I'm really yeah. excited about this." How many? There's th- always a good trailer. There's always a good premise, and then you watch the show, and it's just a clown car of bad ideas. Where you're just like, "There's another one. There's another one." Reminds um, me of that old fucking Chris Rock joke about David Blaine. Like, how are you going to fall for a trickless magician? (laughs) (laughs) So anything else we want to talk about in regards to uh, regulators or desperation? Oh, that's what I meant. (laughs) I've been doing that all my life. I I think, I think the China pit sequence is one of the scariest, like, like I've talked about, I've talked a lot about the bad stuff and I feel, I feel shitty about that because I love desperation. Yeah. Let's talk about some good things. Uh, The China pit sequence is one of the scariest, most disturbing things King has written for, for me. It's, it ranks up there with, with it. It ranks up there with, with some of the stuff in revival. It it is genuinely horrific and nightmarish what he's describing, what these miners go through. Um, 
context for the for the listeners, um, the whole thing you find out comes about because um, Desperation used to be an old mining uh, colony, and and hundreds of years ago there was um, a mining pit called the China Pit, and and the owners were basically using what basically amounted to almost Chinese slave labor to right. dig this thing under really unsafe circumstances. And, and you know, it, it, it turns into mines of Moria really fast where the dwarves <laughs> delve too deep and they and find some brutally, shit down yeah. there. Um, and, and the descriptions of what they go through and then the sort of sad, tragic story of, of these sort of the, the miners who, who are really kind of, two of the most heroic selfless characters in all of King's career uh, and, and the sort of cruel joke of, of the punishment of what actually happens to them. Like when I pitched it, I was like, that's an episode all by itself. Like you could, you could spend an hour on the China pit and just really scare the living hell out of people. Um, because there's, to me, there's nothing creepier than being in an old unstable mine, 300 feet below the surface with, with, you know, beams that could collapse on you at any second. And you, you, you put your pickaxe through the wall and just this unholy, ugly red light starts pouring through and something is whispering on the other side. It is such a fucking great setup for, for a a scary story um, that you almost want that China pit spinoff of just like, what's the entire book uh, about that story? If, if, If he had spent more time on it, it's, it's one of my favorite passages Right. Um, and it's one of those things that has just always stayed with me. Uh, although it is told in a ridiculous way, right? Because that's the one where he, David Carver, watches this whole story play out through the moviola in the projection booth. Is that? Isn't that, that the Nick impetus Garris, though, of it? That's Stephen King. I'm trying to remember because Garris definitely like has the old timey like, right? Hey, we're we're watching a moviola thing, um, which which kind of for me saps all the horror and, and right. turns it into like. You know, it, it's it's almost like a Buster Keaton short. Right. Um, I, I may be conflating <laughs> the two, but I, I seem to remember that that uh, that the flashback to because that's like the the origin of of Tack and and how yeah. everything kind of got unleashed on this town. And uh, it, I seem to remember that it it was told in a similar way in the book, but maybe I'm wrong. It's, it's oh, yeah. they, you know I watched I rewatched the miniseries right after reading the the book you know so uh, rereading the book so it was like uh, you may be uh, right though you may be right that he, he yeah. definitely goes into a, a sort of magical treehouse that well, of the mind and and God shows him this yes, sort yeah. of flashback yeah he he's um, unconscious right he's unconscious at this point like getting this needed uh, history because that's when like the uh, like he's David is being threatened he like tax about to to win and you know kill him and they snuck into the movie theater whatever that, that they're all hiding in and, and whatnot and, and david's in, unconscious throughout the whole thing yeah 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 he, he, like he just becomes a, a little comatose like exposition machine for, for 100 pages <laughs> and he's like here's everything you need to know guys um but but i i seem to remember in the book like whatever the format is where it's initially shown to david like it very quickly becomes king just sort of describing it in his usual wonderful way yeah then you're Um, just in it and it was one of those sections that just really like was just nightmare fuel for me the first time i read it it's good stuff and and it's really creepy it gets into that little bit of a lovecraftian territory because like you said it's kind of you know it's in it's in the past and it's a different time and it's kind of this ancient evil and you're just getting little glimpses you know of, of what's going on and how it's taking people over and and uh 
Uh, and yeah, because up until this point, we've only really seen it manifest in a quote unquote modern day way through, you know, modern day characters. And th- it does add a little something when you kind of realize the age of this thing. And, and, and that was one of my not arguments, but that was one of the things that I, w- I was trying to kind of convey to ABC when we were pitching to them is, is like the actual story of what happens in desperation is, is fairly compressed and it's, and it's a fairly intense a to Z thriller of the people are locked up. The people have to escape. The people have to get out of the town. The evil is trying to stop them. Um, but the world surrounding that there's, there's a lot of backstory. There's a lot of history of the first time this sort of pit was uncovered hundreds of years ago. There's the story of what has happened in this town ever since. And there's the story of what happens when, when, Collie starts going bad for the first time and starts taking over this town. And that's right. all backstory that we don't actually see in the novel, but it's all kind of very fertile territory to explore. If you have a six hour miniseries, if you have that sort of time to fill, you can take these digressions. You can see the sort of evolution of the evil and how tack has sort of infected and perverted and warped this landscape over the last several hundred years and really just turn this, this little deserted mining town into the mouth of hell. Um, And I I just thought there was something really evocative and really cool about that. You mentioned that you'd worked on uh, the Tommy knockers, which is very interesting to me because it's, it's also, we talked about how the hell do you make that into uh, a movie? Uh, I know that you can't, I don't know if you can talk much on, on what your adaptation was or where it is now. I know you worked on it with uh, James Wan, right? Yeah. Um, uh, but I remember at the time whenever it was announced and we were talking about it, you know, I think that the, the King cast was running at that point. You, you knew me already. You knew I was a big King fan. And I was just like, I don't know how the fuck you do that, man, because that's a really tough ass book to, to crack. Did you view it as a challenge whenever you you got that gig? To, oh, it to was do a it? crazy challenge. It was it was. And, and, and I got to tread carefully because my script is probably dead but I don't know if parts of it are still being used. I don't know if it's still right. in development. I mean, sure. just, just so audio, just so everyone knows, like the way this stuff works in town is, you know, you get hired for a job and you hand in the script and everyone's like, it's great. We're going to get some more eyes on it and do some more things. And then you never hear from anybody again. And, and <laughs> years later it comes out and there's 10 writers on it and, and, and it's something radically different. So like, I don't know if Tommy knockers is still in development. I, I can't, I don't want to spoil what I did too much, but I, but here's the stuff I can say. Um, Tommy knockers is, is Stephen King at his most cocaine, you know? Yes. I think that is, I think that's one of those books that he, he says in um, on writing that he doesn't even remember writing. I think that's right. one of them. Uh, or maybe yep. that's Cujo. Um, but it, it's kind of the same period where it feels very, it feels like he is writing 50 pages a day on that thing. Like it is just flowing out of him. And it it is a book that's full of incredibly weird digressions. There's, there's a point where, um, where the, the Ruth character, the, the, the like town librarian, um, he has like a hundred page flashback of this character. Who's already dead. Just sort of like, (laughs) by the way, this stuff all happened to Ruth and we're going to rewind a little bit and bring (laughs) you back up to speed on this character who for the record has already been blown to bits. Um, so it's, it's just this book that is constantly kind of zooming off on tangents. And some of those tangents are really fun and really rewarding. And some of them are, are just sort of nonsensical. And there's a lot of, and there's a lot of time spent with him sort of justifying 
how this town um, could be isolated. Um, right. he, he spends a lot of time just like, well, there's six roads in and out of town and this is happening on this road and this is happening over and there's an accident over here on this road. Um, and, and, and it feels like he's, he's sort of just like checking boxes to make sure that you understand just how isolated and fucked these townspeople really are. Um, right. So, so I had a couple of initial instincts when I was doing the adaptation. The first was to to transport Haven and set it on an island instead of instead of um, doing it sort of in the middle of the woods, uh, just because I felt like that was a much easier way to justify the fact that this town could be slowly transforming without regular visitors sort of driving through. You don't have to justify right. why the UPS guy isn't necessarily privy to this weird shit going on. (laughs) Um, And and, then the second change was really just like looking at what is the emotional component of this story? What is the sort of core takeaway? And for me, it was the love story between Gardner and Bobby Um, and and Gardner's sort of the alcoholic fuck up. And Bobby is, is sort of starts as the main character and she's the one who sort of discovers the, the spaceship buried in the woods um, and by the end of the novel, you know, Bobby has obviously undergone this crazy transformation and your your protagonist actually winds up being your villain by the end of it yeah. um, to some extent. Um, so so everything was sort of in service of like, what is their love story? What is their relationship? Let's let's not try to do a massive ensemble and and weave in 50 different characters and show how they're all undergoing this this nightmare let's really keep it contained to just gardner and bobby's perspective and and let this sort of horror sort of unfold from an outsider's perspective and let gardner sort of be your your eyes and ears uh and and your window into this story um Hmm. so that was kind of my approach and and everyone seemed to like it but it was also massively expensive um (laughs) yeah i think if you've if you've read that book, you know, there's a spaceship in the ground. The implied promise there is, look, at some point we have to go inside that spaceship. At some point we probably, you know, that spaceship is being uncovered. At some point you're going to want to see that spaceship actually lift off into the sky and, and do some horrible shit. And, and so all of that stuff gets really expensive in a hurry. And, you know, I, I think I, I think the first it came out and everyone in town got a little starstruck and, and started thinking like, Oh, maybe if we do, maybe we, we can do very expensive Stephen King adaptations that will make a half a billion dollars at the box office. And then I think by the time I had handed in my first script, there had probably been a couple more King adaptations in various mediums that didn't hit the way it, chapter one did. And, and I think probably cooler heads prevailed and, and they realized like, yeah, I don't know if we actually want to spend a hundred million dollars doing <laughs> a very weird hard R horror movie about, you know, basically alien body snatchers. Um, so, so <laughs> I still think Tommy knockers is going to exist at some point, but the version that gets made, my guess will, uh, a, a writer smarter than me will probably find a way to tell that same story in a more budget conscious way um, <laughs> right. where I kind of went for, I kind of went for it. I, I was like, fuck it. I'm, I'm going to get that spaceship in the air. I'm going to destroy this town. I'm going to have some fun with it. Um, and I'm going to send that kid's little brother to an, uh, uh, another planet. Yeah, we're going to see it. I just actually, I have, I have one specific question about the adaptation that you wrote. For yeah. Um, 
And I may I, I may be conflating this with another King thing, but I so think the it, it, it Tommy Knockers is the one with the scene with the lady that has the thing on her T uh, has like a little Jesus that talks to her on her TV, right? Yes. Yeah. It, yeah. Was that in your adaptation? Uh, yeah, it was. Um, it, it's, it's <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> it's, and, and it's a really cool little, it, it's like, that's one of those diversions um, that the miniseries did it. Okay. Uh, but, but in the novel, that's one of those things where you can tell he's just having a blast of, of like, what if your Jesus crucifix on the wall started talking to you? <laughs> right. Um, and, and so our, our version of, of, or my version of the alien infection was, it, it was, it was pretty techno organic. I guess you'd say there was a lot of sort of body horror and transformation stuff, but we definitely, so, so the version of the Jesus scene was in there, but it was, it was slightly modified, but it was the same kind of general idea for sure. Gotcha. Tommy Knocker's adaptation that's going to get my stamp of approval will have that scene in there because it's just such a weird little fucking. I also had the uh, crossover scene with uh, with um, Talisman uh, because in Tommy Knockers they meet Jack Sawyer on the beach. Um, he's yeah. hanging out at the at the hotel. Oh man, I had I had, uh, I had some all things serve the beam. Graffiti on the pier the guard wakes up on. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I, just, I packed that thing full of fucking Stephen King references. Fucking do it. Nobody got. And everyone was just like, why, is, <laughs> why are we spending 10 pages where he meets some kid on a beach? I'm like, because it's Jack Sawyer. And they're like, yeah, we, we don't have the rights to the talisman. That, that means that's Yeah, that's yeah. all like melded in that book, which is so weird. You're right, because that's in the book. There's also the, the like, doesn't like a couple of the kids like see Pennywise looking out, out of a sewer grate when they go yeah. into dairy to get batteries or something. Yeah, he sees yeah. some 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 glowing eyes coming from a sewer grate. Right. I so think weird. That was around the time that King really sort of committed to this sort of shared universe, um, because right. I feel like there aren't a lot of interconnected references in in sort of his seventies novels and and the early eighties ones. And then you get to the time of Tommy Knockers, and you can tell that he's starting to have some fun, and he's starting to say, right. "Fuck it, let's put in Pennywise. Why not?" <laughs> Well, that's about when he's about halfway into the Dark Tower series, right? Because that that would be right around Wastelands, drawing of the three in Wastelands, and that's when he's really starting to. Because Wastelands is where he brings in Randall Flag, and yeah, and or I guess it's yeah, yeah, it's the end of Wastelands when Randall Flag shows up. So yeah, you know, we're just like fuck it. It's this is this is it. Dark Tower connects everything. Everything shared universe. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's Prime King, man. That is that's the era that made me fall in love with him, and and all of those little crossover moments, it's hard to explain it to kind of studio executives um, why that's so cool if you weren't a King reader at the time because right. every one of them felt like these these amazing Easter eggs, like you, you were sharing a yeah. language and you were, you were picking up on codes that the normals wouldn't get. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, I, I feel like these Easter eggs that are so common in, in Marvel and DC and, and, blockbuster cinema now i i feel like king pioneered them in a lot of ways in the 80s and he doesn't get enough credit for that so is james wan a big king fan um yeah no he 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 loves king he he adores him james wasn't super involved with the version of tommy knockers because at the time he was filming um maybe it was aquaman or maybe it was fast and the furious i i I don't remember which but he Mm -hmm. was off on some 
$200 million movie uh, and wasn't super available. Um, but, but James is the nicest guy on the planet. And oh and yeah, he's just, he is, he loves horror so unconditionally um, and, and, and with such a purity that like, yeah, of course he's, of course he's a Stephen King. Superman. Well, you never he's know. Always in the back I of my assume, head. I like, assume so. A good enough job. Maybe he'll direct this. Uh, <laughs> James is one of the nicest guys in the business. I've, he really I've is. met him a few times and he's um, just the sweetest dude. We've tried to get him on the show a few times and uh, he's a busy the word, man. The, well, the word that came back was just, he doesn't do podcasts. Yeah. You know, <laughs> he's just not interested in doing that kind of thing. Like, um, which sucks. Cause I know how, I know how badass that dude is. And uh, now I know he's definitely a King fan. So yeah. maybe we'll try again after Aquaman. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's uh it's interesting because we've we've had that with a few people, but like I just try to explain. It's just having a conversation is no different than doing a, a print interview, except you're just people hearing your voice. You know, yeah. it's uh at the end of the day, it's just an interview. But I think people in their mind have uh, conflated more with like TV or something. I don't know, but yeah, no, we'd love to have him on the show. And uh, uh, are we good on on desperation? You think we're We've gotten everything that we we want to talk about out. I'm all. I set. think so. Yeah, uh, go read Desperation, guys. It's it's. Right. I, I know I said some bad stuff about it, but I promise those are the two the two things that keep it from being a classic masterpiece. Um, but close to a masterpiece is still a really good place to end up. There's no shame in being a For B real. plus Stephen King book, you know? Right. Absolutely. And I'd. I'd ha- and I'd have you know that uh, when King was on the show, he specifically said that he listened to the Desperation episode that we'd done, not because of the the name or whatever. He just really loves that book and loves hearing people talk about it. So you've spent all this time negging Desperation, and this might be something that King himself listens to. Thanks, Think about Eric. that. Yeah. Think about that and see if you go to sleep tonight. Oh my God. Uh, Steven, if you're listening, thank you for my childhood. And I'm sorry that I cursed so much. And I'm sorry I hate children and Dean Koontz and American Horror Story. And just, yeah, I, I can handle all those fandoms coming after me on Twitter. Just please don't hate me on Twitter, Stephen King. Oh man, can, can you imagine if, if Stephen King like adds you on Twitter going, I heard what you said. You piece of shit. And also I watched Moon Knight and it was trash. How about that? Takala. <laughs> Takala, bitch. Yeah. Uh, speaking of, this is probably a good point to uh, open up the floor to you to, to tell us where uh, people can find your work uh, next. I think this is airing the day that Moon Knight drops, actually. So that's fortuitous for you. But uh, what, what, you know, what else do you want to talk about? In it, or do you want to talk about whatever you want to talk about? Now is your chance. Let's go crazy. Uh, yeah, I, I don't have a ton to plug. Uh, Moon Knight comes out on Disney Plus uh, March 30th. Uh, and then I don't know how many episodes they're dropping, or but I know there's one a week. Um, and then that's kind of all I got on my plate. I'm, I'm hopefully uh, directing a movie uh, this summer or fall I, I'm called Thread, which is a, kind of a, a fun horror comedy um, about time travel and monsters. So I will definitely have something to plug someday, but that's, that's still pretty far in the distance. Um, yeah, that's all I got. Go watch moon Knight. I hope you guys like it. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming on, man. And, Indeed. uh, and rest up and, uh, we'll see you on, uh, on overwatch. I, I will be there. 
being the world's best Lucio. Many thanks to Jeremy Slater for taking us back to the little town of desperation. Yes. And uh, filling us in on uh, his hatred of religious children. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his, Dean his seething hatred of Dean Koontz. You know, and I also loved hearing, you know, kind of his thoughts on what he would do with his own miniseries and, you know, what he and Raimi were kind of planning together. All around good guy, that, that Jeremy Slater. I like that Slater. Yeah, very good guy. Uh, always a pleasure to to talk about Desperation as well and our boy Kali and Trajan. Um, yes, for sure. You know, and also looking forward to seeing Moon Knight, which we still haven't seen. We've got the co-creator of the Moon Knight series on the show. We haven't even seen it. I it's, know. No, no special treatment. This is, uh, no we're going to be treatment. filing a grievance with our union. Uh, definitely unfair. I can't wait to see the show. Uh, thanks again to Slater for coming on. Uh, so what do we got in the, the, uh, the back pocket here? I think we got a couple of really interesting things to tell everybody about. Mm-hmm. Um, where do you want to start? You want to go with next week's main yeah. feed or yeah. Te- tease the next week's main feed baby. And then we'll close out with the okay. Patreon next week. We are tackling uh, a little movie by the name of the night flyer on the show. Mm. Uh, the, we, we, we did a commentary on this one with uh, Twitter's number one favorite son, Bakun. <laughs> way back in the day, but we have not touched the night flyer on the main feed yet. And we've got a first time guest for this one. He is somewhere within the galaxy of Mike Flanagan, all stars, mm-hmm. you know, uh, he's part of that family. He's also a successful producer in his own right. He was open to doing, uh, the night flyer and, you know, us being such raging Miguel Ferrer fans. And also we just kind of fucking dig the night flyer. <laughs> right. uh, we could not turn that down. So we're, we're heading into those friendly skies uh, next week. If you have not seen the night flyer, be aware that you can just watch it on YouTube, which is something that we did not tell our guest beforehand. And <laughs> he ended up, well, I'll let him explain on the show, but uh, he went through quite a journey. Just, money was spent. Money, yeah, was spent. a lot of money uh, spent <laughs> uh, just just to be able to see this movie, so we could talk about it on the air. Uh, you can just go to YouTube; it's free. Uh, no one gives a shit about uh, the rights to the Night Flyer, apparently, uh, and so it's just fully available on there in probably the best quality you're going to get it. And we also frankly. highly recommend you watching it. It's if you've never seen it, it is just one of those like, huh. Well, that's surprisingly good, isn't it? It's it's bonkers, it's wacky, it's gory as all hell. It's uh, and Miguel Ferrer just uh, gets a chance to shine in a way that he normally doesn't. So it's a win-win, is all I'm saying. Yeah, totally, totally. All right. So uh, in terms of the Patreon, what we have this Friday for you, God willing, <laughs> hasn't recorded yet, but we uh, we are on track to record our commentary, uh, which we owed you guys for a couple of weeks. Uh, But trust me, it was worth the wait. And uh, we'll go ahead and tell you what it is. We are going to be doing a commentary on Christine with none other than Brian Fuller. Of course, we're bringing Brian Fuller in if we're going to do a commentary on Christine. Yes, just hit Netflix so everyone can watch it. I mean, who? what better guest for a Christine commentary than the guy who is currently working very hard to get his uh, Christine uh, remake off the ground? Right. And we'll we'll talk to him a little bit about that and what the status of that project is. Uh, and then we're going to dig into the Carpenter movie. I can pretty much guarantee this will be the most entertaining way to to see Christine and certainly the <laughs> most informed. He's talked about Christine on the show before, but here we're going to get Brian going. Scene well, by scene. scene by scene, line right. by line uh, in for this movie. And uh, we're very excited to record that with him. 
And if uh, all goes according to plan, that should be happening within the next uh, 36 hours or so. Right. If for some reason uh, that has to be pushed, then, you know, we will we'll get to it. He's committed. We're going to do it. Um, uh, there might need to be a swap on Friday if, if uh, disaster falls. But right now we're on track for it. And that is the plan. And in order to listen to the commentaries, you got to make sure you're, you're uh, signed up at our Patreon at the top tier. That's the gunslinger tier, 10 bucks a month. But you get access to the most badass commentaries you'll get merch discount what else you get access to everything on the patreon at shelbyville time. shelbyville get all them shelbyvilles uh yeah no there's so much good stuff over the patreon you're only really hearing half the show if you listen to the 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 main free feed so uh make sure to sign up if you're not already a patron you can do that over at patreon.com backslash the king cast and uh yeah join the community we got a nice little strong family over there and lots more really fun stuff planned uh, uh so there's going to be no shortage of really awesome things that are available only to our patrons mm-hmm. so might as well sign up now one thing i don't think people realize is that if you sign up for the patreon now hmm. you get like everything like yeah. everything that has happened up to this point. Yeah, so, we get asked about that all the time. Yeah. yeah. And so if you come onto the Patreon now, you're opening up like well over 100 episodes worth of content. You will you will be drowning in Kingcast shit right. if you do that. Um, but tons and tons and tons of great shit going on over there. And uh, a little bit more loosey-goosey than we do over here on the main <laughs> feed where we're... Where we tend to follow a, a, a specific format. The only rule over on the Patreon is if you're coming on the show, you're there to talk about some Stephen King shit. And that can take on, as we have learned, many, many, <laughs> many forms. So um, definitely stop by over there and, you know, try it for a month and just cherry pick some episodes. We we think you will stick around. Oh, yeah. For sure. Um, all right. So we'll see everybody next week for the Night Flyer in the main feed and uh, God willing, this uh, commentary on Friday with Brian Fuller and Christine. Indeed. Adios, folks. Bye. The Kingcast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Ansley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director, and editing is done by yours truly.